This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Thank you very, very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, the question of uh, India's uh, nuclearization is a very complicated one because it didn't happen in a sudden decision, a sudden, you know, all right, let's 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 test now. It happened over an extended period of time and through a through a complicated process. And the question of India's national identity is also a very complex one because it's a very ancient civilization uh, with many streams making up this identity. Uh, before I start, I'll, I'll, I'll try to. I'm trying. I'm going to try to talk about both the impact of national identity on the decision on India's decision to go nuclear and on the impact of nuclearization on the national identity subsequently. Uh, everything I say is, uh, well, I welcome your comments and, and criticisms. Uh, and if you want to uh, raise your hand during, the, during my remarks, uh, please do so. And I'll also uh, have plenty of time, try to reserve plenty of time at the end for discussion, because this is all a very tentative uh, presentation. Let me start by saying something about, any, about the whole concept of national identity. It's one of the oldest uh, concepts in the social, well, now, it's, it's, it was a, about 20 years ago, it was very new, uh, but it's, uh, it was adopted way back in the 60s and 70s during the Social Science Research Council's uh, first attempt to sort of conceptualize a uh, agreed upon uh, terminology for the social sciences. And the definition at that time adopted emphasized very strongly uh, the uh, idea that identity meant that uh, people in a country should uh, all identify with one another. And uh, this was defined in terms by Lucian Pai and others who wrote about uh, national identity. It was defined in terms of having the same language, having the same culture, and having the same uh, uh, political orientations and things like that as one aspect of identity. And the second very important aspect of identity was that of having agreed upon borders for that, uh, for a given country. Uh, and I take issue with, I took issue uh, earlier in, in things I published about this definition of national identity. I think that uh, identity uh, has to do with identification. It it's really comes from a verb. I mean, identification means identification with something and identity is a sort of uh, noun, uh, nominalization of that verb. And so you have, to identi you have to have some talk about the content of what you're identifying with. And that is, a, I think, a set of symbols, or uh, what, the, what the Japanese, uh, or what the Chinese call guozui, is uh, what the, the Chinese term, which means a national um, treasure. Uh, <laughs> in other words, the, um, the set of myths, maybe the constitution, set of legal documents and so forth that you identify with. It sort of defines the uh, sort of American way of life or the Chinese way of life or the Indian way of life. And so it's a very complicated and uh, a it's inevitably a controversial topic to topic of what is the Indian national identity, but I'm going to make, I'm going to try to give it a stab or I give it a try here. What was the Indian national identity before uh, the nuclear tests then? I think that it had uh, several uh, components, several streams moving into this identity. One was, of course, the Gandhian component. Uh, Gandhi was the father of Indian independence. Uh, he was a, uh, uh, a modernizer of 
Hinduism. He conceived of himself as a Hindu and attempted to modernize uh, the ideas that he, 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 he was also he bore influence from England where he was educated and from his earlier life in Africa, of course, Africa, of course. But uh, his uh, most uh, central concepts, of course, were the concept of ahimsa or uh, nonviolence and uh, Swadeshi or uh, you know, self-reliance, reliance on, uh, he used these, all of these things in his independence movement. And of course, multiculturalism, tolerance for other cultural beliefs uh, and so forth. Uh, his ideal was Ram Raja or the kingdom of Ram, Ram uh, where these ideals would, would uh, be realized. Nehru was his close uh, associate uh, Jawaharlal, Jawaharlal uh, Nehru, and he, uh, he was also adhered to this notion of nonviolence. Uh, he was very much opposed to uh, nuclear weapons, at, of course. He, in 1954, he made a proposal to the United Nations, in a speech to the United Nations, that the, uh, for a universal uh, test ban uh, a treaty, uh, the, the idea of a, of a comprehensive test ban treaty originated really with Nehru, ironically as it turned out, in 1954. And uh, he added to uh, Gandhi in some ways. He believed in that India should have a, a model and teaching role for the rest of the world. That India was different, uh, yet uh, it, it stood for universal values. So there's an interesting combination of distinctiveness. India's uh, national identity was distinctive. Uh, but it could be formulated in terms, of, it stood for universal values uh, and that it should be therefore a beacon for the rest of the world, a sort of model for the rest of the world. Uh, he believed in neutrality, didn't believe in blocks, in entangling alliances with, these, uh, with the Cold War. He originated with uh, two other uh, third world leaders at that time, the uh, non-aligned movement and uh, he believed, of course, in socialism and egalitarianism in the state as a uh, developmental state and as a welfare state combined. That the, the sort of a, uh, uh, belief in democracy is part of socialism, the socialist democracy. So this is the; these are two of the immediate streams. But if we think, if we think in these terms, and we think that the uh, nuclearization was obviously a paradoxical development, but if you look deeper into Chinese, uh, Indian. Uh, national identity, conceptions of national identity. Uh, into history, you find a much more complicated picture. Uh, the first uh, Indian Empire was, uh, you know, Ashoka was, Ashoka was the, uh, was the first famous emperor. And the Mauryan Empire from 321 BC to 181 uh, BCE was uh, very much based on realism and on conquest. And its, uh, co its codification, the, the, the manual of statecraft, uh, the Arthashastra Arthur at that time, was a codification of very realist ideas about uh, politics, how politics is conducted. Uh, the most famous model for foreign policy at that time by Katilya uh, was that of the mandala, that uh, the state exists in a circle of other states, some of which are uh, enemies, some of which are uh, friends. Uh, often you have the friends, the, the, the enemies are closest to you, the enemies tend to be farther away in the, in the outer circles. And so uh, you have to balance, you have various different sort of complicated relations with these countries. You have alliances, you have wars, you have uh, duplicity, you have uh, 
very realist sort of conception of the state's uh, role. And since that time of this great empire, India has uh, not expanded beyond uh, the subcontinent. It has not been a conquering uh, identity. It's not, I mean, it's, it's conception of itself. Uh, but it has had many, many wars and invasions. And so they've had plenty of time to become very sophisticated in the ways of realism, what we call realism. The modern era, uh, they've had four conflicts since the independence with Pakistan, uh, three wars, three that they call wars, but really four conflicts at least, and many, many uh, border skirmishes, constant sort of uh, warfare in, uh, guerrilla warfare in Kashmir. There has been a territorial dispute in the Himalayas uh, that has not yet been settled with China. And there has been a dispute with, a running dispute with Pakistan over Kashmir and uh, so forth. And so they've had uh, a, a history that has not, has been anything but nonviolent. Uh, the third uh, thought stream coming into uh, uh, Indian national identity is Hindu nationalism, which as you know in the last 10 years has taken a uh, revivalist form or, or a revitalization form, uh, the conception of Hindutva. Uh, Hindutva is a short for uh, Hindu Tattva, which means uh, Hindu principles, principles of Hinduism. And it stands for a type of racialism that the uh, Hindus are Aryans, uh, but it's, uh, and that they, uh, the, 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 uh, they stand for a certain uh, fatherland, Puchabumi, and a certain uh, holy land, Punyabumi, and that everybody who is in India should believe and, and accept this holy land, and other people are guest people who may be tolerated, but they have to accept this, otherwise uh, they, they would be uh, discriminated against. And there have been uh, two very famous massacres of Muslims in particular in India, for which the, uh, uh, this Hindu uh, nationalist movement has been blamed, uh, with whatever justice uh, it's not for me to say, but uh, certainly in 1992, the uh, Babri Mosque affair in uh, Ayodhya, and in 2002, again in Gujarat, uh, there was uh, probably uh, at least a thousand people killed in Muslim, mostly Muslims in Gujarat. So that there has been uh, tense relationships between the Hindu uh, revi revitalization movement and especially the, uh, the Muslim community, about 13% uh, of India is Muslim, and also the Christians, because Christians are also not considered part of the indigenous uh, religion in, in, in India. There are four religions that are accepted as an indigenous, the Jains, the Hindus, the uh, Buddhists, and the uh, uh, Sikhs. Uh, but the Christians and the uh, Muslims are not, because they think that they might be, have torn loyalties, they might have other loyalties. And so this is a, another stream that has come in quite vigorously into Indian, uh, competing for national identity in India especially since the end of the Cold War. Uh, and uh, now what has been the impact of this on, on India's nuclearization? As I say, this has been uh, a very controversial topic and it's been complicated to detail exactly how the causal impact worked because India's nuclearization did not occur at one time. I mean, the first, uh, there, there are different conceptions of what causes a country to nuclearize. What, in international relations theory, uh, the most frequent sort of uh, explanation is force against force. In other words, if you 
have another country nuclearizes first that you consider a rival, then you have to nuclearize. So it's purely in terms of national security. This is usually the way it's explained in terms of international relations theory. And there, then, people would look at China, China's nuclearization. China first exploded a bomb in 1964. And they would look at, obviously, Sino-Soviet relations, because China and Russia were, uh, their relations at that time were very, very, uh, becoming worse and worse. Uh, in terms of India, one would look at uh, the Chinese explosion of a bomb in 64 and then look at and expect India to explode one very soon afterwards. But if, the, if we look closely, the sequence of events doesn't exactly follow this sort of force-counter-force -force, uh, logic because India's explosion of a bomb did not occur until 10 years after China's explosion. Uh, and it could have, we, I, it's arguable that it certainly could have occurred much earlier. Uh, Homi Baba, who was the leader of the uh, Indian uh, nuclear uh, uh, research uh, sort of institution at that time, uh, estimated that it could have occurred within 18 months after, the, uh, after they started working on it. So it could have been much earlier. So it doesn't really uh, take this sort of force-counter-force logic. It, the first bomb was a, what they call a peaceful nuclear uh, explosion in 1974. And it uh, was puzzlingly, from everybody's point of view except the Indians, it was not followed up by uh, weaponization, what they call weaponization. They did not build, they had a, a bomb, they demonstrated that they could explode a bomb, but they didn't follow up by building uh, the delivery vehicles that normally go along with a bomb or that uh, to build a whole sort of stockpile of weapons to, to, use the, to make the bomb deployable, to, to be able to use the bomb. They simply sat on it. And when Indira Gandhi, who was at that time prime minister at the time that the first bomb was exploded, was asked about this, she said, well, I don't believe in nuclear, nuclear weapons. <laughs> so uh, obviously uh, a very sort of uh, ambivalent uh, entry into, nuclear, into, nuclear, uh, into nuclearization. Uh, this remained this way, they maintained the status quo until about 1988. Uh, in 1986, A.Q. Khan was interviewed and he said, well, Pakistan now has a bomb. See, Pakistan is another sort of obvious long-term rival of India, and if, if Pakistan gets a bomb, then India would be for pushed to get a bomb to, to, for, for uh, security reasons, of course. Uh, he, uh, A.Q. Khan said, well, we, we really have a bomb, and a bomb in the basement idea sort of, uh, uh, sort of uh, we're, uh, we're not declaring it, but we have a capability of building a bomb, and we have a bomb. And uh, this apparently inspired uh, Rajiv Gandhi to make a decision to weaponize in 1988. And uh, this was started uh, shortly after that, and uh, it uh, by 1990, it's estimated that uh, India had weaponized. It, in other words, it was very, very close. It had the weapons there and uh, was able to deliver them in 19, by 1990. But it did not announce it. Uh, meanwhile, this, is, this complicated sort of ambivalent sort of uh, approach to nuclearization was complicated by the fact that after the Chinese explosion of their first bomb in 1964, this stimulated a search for a non-proliferation treaty because people thought, well, we have to stop this proliferation of nuclear weapons. And so after 19, 1963 was the first uh, uh, 
partial test ban treaty, which, uh, which uh, Nehru signed. And uh, in 1965, uh, well, 1968 was a non-proliferation treaty. 1970, uh, 1980, let's see, got all these uh, dates mixed up, I'm afraid. Anyway, this, this, this effort, non-proliferation treaty, and uh, by 1990, it, it caused a controversy in India. Do we want to sign or not? And they changed their minds. I mean, the, the Indians had been an early proponent of non-proliferation, and by 1990, they had misgivings because, of course, as you know, probably, uh, the non-proliferation treaty covered the five official holders of nuclear weapons, that they could keep their bombs, but nobody else could get them. And this was clearly, to the Indians, uh, undemocratic and uh, creating a monopoly of the five nuclear weapons, and it shut them out. It was discriminatory against India, so that was the whole uh, problem. They refused to sign the non-proliferation treaty, and they refused to enter the atomic energy, the uh, United Nations Atomic Energy Commission, and uh, that they were the most prominent, India and Pakistan were the most prominent holdouts against this, and they endured many, many sanctions, trade sanctions periodically over the years for refusing to sign and for continuing to develop their nuclear weapons. When, when the um, BJP finally came to power in, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll conclude just a moment, uh, when the BJP finally came to power in 1998, after having come to power just for 14 days in 1986, they, uh, uh, Atal Bihari Vajpayee, uh, the prime minister, and long time, uh, a very, very, very important intellectual influence on the uh, thinking in the BJP, announced immediately his intention to, uh, to nuclearize, to, to weaponize. And uh, since he talked to the scientists and they said that they would need to have tests to do that, he scheduled a test and he promptly did that. So he, the, the, the uh, nuclear weapons tests occurred in, what was it, May? It was May 1998, and it was followed the, later the same month by Pakistan's explosion of an exactly equal number of tests. And so that was the official uh, nuclearization of India. And here we can trace uh, fairly clearly uh, uh, direct ideological influence of the BJP and the Hindu, uh, Hindu re revitalization movement on that decision. But as I say, it was just a very, very, it was done rapidly. It could be done within a few months. It didn't require a long developmental effort because of the <coughs> earlier work that had been done under uh, uh, the predecessors of, uh, of the BJP when they came to power. So it was really just a, uh, the last, hitting the last tripwire and, and going ahead and, and, and weaponizing something that already really basically existed. Now, uh, in conclusion then, did the Chinese, did the Indian national identity influence uh, nuclearization? Well, I think it did. I think it clearly did. I think it made Indian nuclearization much more ambivalent than it might otherwise have been. Uh, you have some of this ambivalence in other nuclear countries. Uh, for example, uh, Oppenheimer in the United States was quite ambivalent about the, his, his role in the construction of the American first nuclear weapon, and uh, Sakharov in, in the Soviet Union. Uh, but uh, in India, it was extremely uh, highlighted the uh, ambivalence of the, uh, the whole nuclear effort, 
and not only among nuclear scientists, but among politicians and the Gandhiists and so forth, the uh, very strong concerted effort to block uh, nuclearization. And this ambivalence meant that it was long delayed. The uh, nuclearization was delayed much uh, over a lot, much longer period of time than it might have been had it not had that been they had not been so afflicted by this ambivalence. Uh, but ultimately, India was drawn by the idea that nuclearization is equivalent to great power status. If we're a nuclear weapons state, the five standing the five uh, seats on the United Nations Security Council are all held by nuclear powers. The permanent seats are all held by the official nuclear powers. So if we acquire nuclear weapons, we will acquire great, great power status. And there's no ambivalence in India about the wish, I, th I think, to uh, be a, a great power, that India wishes to be a great power and wishes to be acknowledged as such. So I think that uh, that overcame the, the ambivalence about the nuclearization. Now, has that nuclearization had an impact on national identity? Uh, is the second question on, on India's national identity. Well, what's happened since that time? I think it's, um, well, we can go into that in just a second. I think it has. I think it has changed the Indian national identity. One, uh, it has increased the acceptance of India, I think, as a great power. I think if you read uh, the common newspapers and so forth, I think it has, uh, that the world has moved to accept the uh, India as a great power. Uh, there is no serious effort to force India to disarm its nuclear weapons, as there has been in North Korea case, perhaps even successfully. It may, I, from today's news, it might even work. Uh, there has been no serious attempt to force India or Pakistan to disarm, and it's increasingly accepted in the world that uh, India is a so. Uh, the whole new legal apparatus of the, of the Non-Proliferation Treaty remains to be worked out. That's a challenge ahead for the lawyers and so forth uh, to build India in as an official member of the nuclear club. But increasingly, at an informal level at least, it has been accepted. So uh, in a, obviously, the acquisition of nuclear weapons had very high public opinion support at the time of the testing. About 90% of the population approved. It's gone down since that time, but I think it's still above 50%. So it has been accepted domestically as part of, the, uh, of, of India's right, as its claim to a great power status, and even internationally. Uh, the, uh, a final sign of this is the Congress party, which uh, was so ambivalent about it before, accepted it, and they have not moved to overturn it. So it's become a bipartisan sort of uh, thing, that India is now a bi 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 bipartisan, accepted as a, a consensus, of, accepted as a nuclear power state. Second, it, there has been, a, I think, a loss of the uh, Gandhian and Nehruvian foreign policy legacy. Uh, we can talk about that, but uh, I think that it certainly has been damaged, if not lost. I think that that, uh, that is somewhat regrettable. Uh, there's a tendency these days for countries, uh, we talk about nationalism since the Cold War, that all these countries want to be different. We have a unique national identity, but some countries want to be like other countries. <laughs> It's, uh, and Japan is one of those that sort of normal, Japan become a normal state, and India seems to be, in a sense, wants to be that way too. They don't want, they want this distinctiveness. Uh, this, this is a drive for less distinctiveness, I, I guess. And, and certainly in terms of this Nehruvian uh, legacy, there is somewhat, a I think there has been a perceptible movement away from that. I, I, I stand to be corrected, we can talk about that. Uh, but uh, movement toward realism, except conventional realism, 
uh, in India, and uh, that the Hindu nationalist strain in India is still still very strong. This idea that uh, the distinctiveness of India, but the Hindu nationalists were among the most ardent supporters, of course, of nuclearization. Uh, third. They have become more pro-Western, obviously. India is the greatest friend of the United States, perhaps in, in the world, aside from Great Britain, of course, now, of, of George W. Bush specifically. I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not criticizing that, but that seems to be a fact. The, in 2002, uh, the Pew uh, sort of polling institute found that 51% uh, of Indians supported the United States, very, very high at that time. In 2005, it was 71% of the Indian population uh, supported the United States, were like the United, were pro-U.S. So that's a third consequence of the of the nuclearization, because of course of the 2005 Bush offer to uh, India to support uh, India to tacitly support India's acquisition of nuclear weapons and to work with India to help to build India into a major uh, economy and uh, uh, conventional weapons power. There are all sorts of uh, the all sorts of efforts to work together uh, to acquire to exchange uh, military visits, naval visits, all sorts of things. The strategic cooperation has moved into high gear between the United States and India. So obviously, India will is. I mean, many Indians are very cautious about this development and critical of it. But it has become a sort of uh, a wave that's sort of engulfing India at the present time. It has it improved India's security. Has it improved India's security? I, I really rather doubt it, but we can talk about that. I, I, I don't think it has really improved India's security, although India's security has improved uh, since the explosion of nuclear weapons in 1998. I think that the situation in South Asia has, after a very, very dicey period in 1999, in 2000, and 2001 especially, has improved, uh, I think. Uh, I think that the uh, relations with China have improved. There's $20 billion of trade, bilateral trade now. Uh, the improved, the relations with Pakistan and the, the, the situation in Kashmir seems to have improved. They now have a forum for talk. Trade has picked up, although they've never had very much trade with Pakistan before, and they've started to trade, and they have, they've institutionalized uh, transportation networks and so forth. So I think that uh, uh, although the nuclear weapons cannot be said to have contributed to this, I mean, I think for uh, the nuclear weapons did not stop the Kargil War. The Kargil War, uh, you can't call it a war, they don't call it a war, but it was really, uh, over a thousand people were killed. So it was a conflict, the first post-nuclear conflict between nuclear holding states. It didn't, nuclear weapons did not stop it. So is Waltzianism dead? <laughs> That's uh, one question that we have to have. Waltz, Waltz's assumption was that if two adversaries both have nuclear weapons, then that eliminates the prospect of war because the possibility of escalation. But now, after the uh, Cargill conflict, it showed that because people can assume that, uh, that there won't be a nuclear exchange, they can engage in conventional, conventional, conventional violence. So it, uh, now since that time, uh, India demonstrated that it could also overcome Pakistan conventionally as well. Maybe that's the reason, but 
I think that the situation is now improved, but it hasn't. It has really thrown a lot of conventional wisdom about deterrence, the efficacy of deterrence, open to question. I think. Uh, well, I think I'll stop here. Uh, it's, a, it's so has had paradoxical impact on India's security situation. I, I would say. <laughs> I, 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 that's not very sort of uh, very uh, rhetorically very. <laughs> Very, uh, but I let me just stop right here and, and see if there are any questions. Yes, a couple of comments. Yeah, George Perkovich, a couple of years ago, unearthed a memorandum that I wrote right after the Chinese tested in 1964. This is, I was in the Defense Department. Oh, the time, and in it, I said, This will lead to India having nuclear weapons. I don't remember if I put a date on it, <laughs> and I said, Then that for sure is going to lead to Pakistan having nuclear weapons. So, in any case, for what it's worth. Uh, main point, you didn't discuss the role of uh, India's uh, civilian nuclear power program, which was really for countries like poverty and really major enterprise, played an intimate role in getting nuclear weapons. All of this took place, began actually very early, when there was enormous uh, confusion about the economics of nuclear, civilian nuclear energy. We had one phrase used at the time, too cheap to bother metering it, uh, which was kind of absurd. But in any case, it was part of a, a good thing to help developing countries get nuclear power. It was also known, to anybody bothered to care, Homi Baba certainly knew it, that the, the, the line between having civilian nuclear energy and bombs was very slight. I mean, it didn't take much. So the way to go was, of course, peaceful. Uh, and, and, and countries like the U.S. and Canada and so on, they would finance a lot. So they did. The Canadian technology was particularly pernicious in the Indian case. It was a style of reactor, design of reactor called CANDU, uh, which did not require enriched uranium. There were enrichment processes. It's very tricky to see this in Iran right now. It's a big, big fight about it. All I had to have, have was natural uranium. Uh, and the heavy water moderator, and you got out plutonium bomb stuff. Uh, I believe that was used by the Indians in their first, the 1974 test. I'm not sure, but I think they probably did use the, uh, the uh, spent fuel <coughs> as a source. The Canadians gave it to them. Uh, for the bomb test. Now, the, repeat, the Indian physicists knew this perfectly well. Uh, there was general confusion in the world about this, let's say, but all physicists about it, understood that. <coughs> uh, governments were not so clear. I mean, at least the US or Canadian and European governments were not so clear. So the way to go is the way they went. I mean, the economics of nuclear energy for India were, were really very bad because of great but if somebody else was paying for it, it was fine. So it was more upset. Somebody else was paying, providing in the Canadian case the right technology for a bomb program. But they exploited it. Now, this has nothing to do with Indian identity. It has to do, a lot to do with some smart people yeah. in India. <laughs> so, not so smart elsewhere, going down that path. I appreciate that, uh, that point. I think it's a very good point. I said, very, we're fortunate to have you uh, here to make that point. Uh, that is absolutely right. Uh, the uh, Atomic Energy Commission was started in 1948, 
meeting the next year after independence, Nehru started it. Paradoxically, although he was opposed to nuclear weapons, he was very much in favor of nuclearization. He was, he, he was an enlightenment person and an enlightenment intellectual. He believed in science. The science could uh, help uh, you know, solve human, uh, man, mankind's problems, uh, humankind's problems. And so uh, the uh, nuclear, you're right, it provided the wherewithal. It provided the technical capability for them to build bombs when they decided to do it. Uh, and that was certainly an important contribution to, uh, to nuclearization. Uh, because, as you say, as you point out, uh, this is uh, one of the problems of uh, non-proliferation efforts is that the line, the, the line between peaceful nuclearization and uh, building a bomb is uh, very permeable. And uh, let's see if there's anything else I can say. I, I, so that provided not only uh, the wherewithal, the technical wherewithal, but it's so, so, uh, something of a lobby. I think Baba was himself personally in favor of nuclearization. And the people associated with that institution, I, I stand to be corrected if I'm wrong, but I, as, I, as I understand that they supported nuclearization. So it provided a sort of an institutionalized lobby, I think, in favor of it. It wasn't decisive because you had to have a political decision. These political decisions were made by politicians in isolated fashion. Uh, both the 74 decision by Indira Gandhi and the, and the 98 decision by uh, Vajpayee were made by a very few, very small number of elites without anybody else knowing about them. Yeah. Yeah, I want to uh, re-emphasize something that uh, Harry said. Uh, well, first, uh, let me say that uh, Nehru, uh, you say that he, he was ambivalent, but he understood, of course, quite well that uh, that India could make nuclear weapons uh, when they when it wanted to, and in fact. In Perkovich's book, uh, a conversation is recounted between uh, Nehru and Baba, where he uh, asks Baba, well, if we made nuclear weapons, how long would it take? And Baba says, about 18 months. And then Nehru says, well, don't do it until I tell you. Uh, so he, he understood quite well that uh, there could be a point, uh, in fact he said it in speeches, where if India felt that security was threatened, that they would go ahead and, and do it. Uh, the, uh, the point about uh, the explosion in 74, it wasn't just the Canadian reactor. The Canadian reactor, uh, of course, had American heavy water in it, uh, uh, which we sold to the Indians with a peaceful use assurance attached to it in the contract. So when the, uh, uh, in fact, we, our intelligence agencies understood that the Indians were working toward uh, making nuclear, a nuclear weapon and were concerned that the material for the weapon would come from the Canadian reactor with U.S. heavy water in it. So we sent uh, a, a, an aid memoir, was sent to the Indian Atomic Energy Commission uh, from the United States uh, telling them uh, that uh, the contract for heavy water says peaceful use only, and we don't consider an explosion to be peaceful use, so it would be a violation of the contract if an explosion were to be mounted. Yeah. The Indians uh, disagreed, and they just went ahead and, and did the explosion, and as a result of that, a few years later, uh, Congress passed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Act, uh, which I happen to write as a staff member. Did it? Uh, and, uh, and that ended uh, U.S. nuclear trade with India uh, for uh, until just recently. 
Now, I want to say something about, uh, uh, let me also say something about uh, the 1998 tests. The fact is that you know, the BJP did come into power for a very short period of time. I think it was in 95, uh, for something like 13 days. 96. Uh, 96. Well, whatever it was, 96. And, uh, and there's also been, and, but there was a lot of sort of economic turmoil in India at the time, and so they didn't come in and say, okay, we're in, and the next week we're going to, you know, explode a nuclear device, even though the, uh, the preparations pretty much had been done. Uh, and then they, they were kicked out of office, and the following uh, government um, decided that they would go ahead with an explosion, but were dissuaded from doing it by the United States because a, another law had been passed uh, in 94, which had a, a large number of, of economic sanctions that would befall any country, uh, any non-weapon state, which India was considered to be, uh, who, uh, who made a nuclear test. And when they realized that this would have a, a pretty devastating effect on the Indian economy, the test wasn't made. And what happened was between 96 and 98, they simply did an analysis and realized that if if they were to test and the Pakistanis would then test, the Pakistanis would have to suffer the same sanctions and those sanctions would sink the Pakistani economy completely. And so the Indians were willing to take that chance. And and they and they basically called our bluff. They performed the test in 98. The sanctions were automatically put in. They were only in for a few days when Congress passed a law taking some of them off because of agricultural interests who wanted to keep trading with India. And then uh, uh, gradually, many of the sanctions were removed. And finally, after 9-11, after uh, the United States, George Bush basically removed you know, all of them. And my final comment has to do with the, uh, the U.S.-India nuclear agreement. Uh, there is a contingent of people who believe that the United States not only wanted to recognize India's nuclear weapons program, but wanted to enhance it because the Bush administration uh, is, was very came into office very concerned about China and wanted India to be a basically a counterweight to Chinese influence in the region. And one way of doing that would be help India to enhance its nuclear weapons program so that it can match China in terms of the number and quality of, the, of weapons. And, uh, and when you look at the agreement, you can make a case that, in fact, this is what has been going on. Because the agreement, as it stands right now, enables the Indians, basically, to uh, even though there's a separation agreement where they have to put some reactors under safeguards, the main part of the Indian program will not be under safeguards. They have uranium shortages in India. If the United States send in, set, uh, sells India nuclear fuel for its civilian program, it means that Indian uranium will then be completely used for the weapons program, which will enable them to ramp up the production of nuclear weapons. The United States surely is aware of this, and I think the fact that the agreement was made in that way means that the Bush administration understood quite well that it was going to help India make more nuclear weapons more quickly. 
Let me ask you this. Do you support the agreement? I do not. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on the religious aspect of the debate on nuclear weapons in India and how that relates to identity. Because it seems to me there would be, at the very least, two sort of competing views about nuclearization in India in maybe the Hindu community. One being maybe the sort of Gandhian non-violent approach. The other being looking at texts like the Ramayana, looking at weapons of mass destruction and the role they play in just war there. So has the Hindu community come decisively down on the side of pro I didn't hear the last part of your question. Did the what? Has the Hindu community in India come decisively down on the side of the pro bomb lobby, or is oh. there any debate on the community itself? I think that the uh, certainly the uh, BJP was the, the original sort of sponsor of the of the official nuclearization, uh, as you know, and. Uh, so the people, uh, the RSS and you know the other coalition parties, part of that uh, Hindu revivalist movement, have been enthusiastically supporters of this. It's interesting that uh, uh, what's happened to the Hindu Hinduism as a sort of religion, uh, as a political religion, uh, since since Gandhi. Gandhi was of course not a conventional Hindu, but he was a Hindu, and he tried to re you know to to revise Hinduism. To modernize Hinduism, and he emphasized the nonviolent part of it. Uh, but it's been picked up now by these nationalists, and they use much of the same terminology, uh, Swadeshi and so forth, uh, these same terminology to talk about quite different things. I mean, Swadeshi means the, you know, India first. And sort of, uh, so I, my impression, I, maybe other people know more about this, is that the Hindu uh, revitalization is very strongly in favor of this. There are still some Gandhians, but not many left. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm Amitabh. I'm a visiting scientist, retired scientist from India, friend of Rafi. I'd uh, like to put a few things in the perspective that is seen in India, how it is seen in India. Uh -huh. Number one is uh, India is the only country which demonstrated a certain capability in nuclear device technology, but chose not to recognize it for more than two decades. The message being that if one is looking for deterrence, perhaps nuclear ambivalence also has a value in terms of deterrence. In fact, uh, there is a, there's a, there's a school of thought that still believe that that deterrence was much better than the weaponized deterrence which is now existing in the subcontinent. Second point I would like to make is that it's not as if the decision to go overtly nuclear organization was that of the BJP. In fact, um, since the 1988 Rajiv Gandhi proposal to, to denuclearize a serious disarmament when that did not cut ice anyway, I think that was the time, and by that time, of course, Pakistan was known to have attained nuclear capability. So I think that was the conscious decision that this is, a now, this is now the time to go ahead, and that was Hong's government. Also, the incident that was mentioned recently, when an attempted test was averted, aborted, because of the diplomatic pressure from the US, was during the Congress government of Narasimha So it is not as if BJP or Hindu nationalism has been behind the bomb. I think in terms of an ethos, India has been against the bomb, continues to be against the bomb. 
But there was a there's a belief in India amongst the Indian people that there was no option than to go nuclear because the ambivalence was becoming a dangerous situation where things could not be discussed across the table. What happened with the 1998 test? What that that secrecy was or ambivalence was removed. It was possible to discuss uh, confidence building measures, security scenarios, uh, command control scenarios across the table. It was also possible for the United States to first time engage India in strategic dialogue. I believe in terms of the Indian identity, it's not it's not as if the Indian identity has shifted from uh, support for non-proliferation to a support for nuclearized world. I think the Indian identity still continues to be with a, the idealism of non-proliferation, idealism of complete disarmament, nuclear fuel. However impractical it may be, but that is the idealism. Hmm. Uh, today, as it stands, I would like to believe that if there is any initiative required by any of the eight nuclear states, in terms of serious universal disarmament, hmm. I'm sure India would once again find uh, itself in the forefront. As it did in 1983, uh, sorry, 93, when uh, CTBT was first being proposed. Thank you very much. I appreciate that point. Uh, very good point. I think that uh, there's a recent book out by Jacques Hyman's that talks about the psychology of nuclearization. And he uh, takes up the point that uh, the uh, Indian bomb is basically a BJP bomb. BJP bomb. It's, it stems from the ideology of the BJP. And it's, uh, he, therefore, to take that point, he has to make a very, very sharp break between the uh, 98 test and the pre foregoing preparation for the test, I mean, the foregoing history. So he does, he makes a very sharp break between the official sort of nuclearization and the foregoing period. Uh, you might be interested in looking at that. I disagree with that. I, I agree with you. I think that the, uh, the difference between uh, the foregoing period and the 98 test was very, very minimal. So I, I agree that the there was obviously a consensus in favor of uh, nuclearization before the 98 test. Uh, a combination of uh, a combination of uh, factors. Uh, the uh, that you know, the the idea that uh, prestige uh, went with uh, being a nuclear power, I think, is part of it. Uh, the uh, I, I I appreciate your point about the ability to talk with Pakistan. Uh, being facilitated by the official uh, acquisition of nuclear weapons, whereas you couldn't talk about these things before because they were all uh, not official. They were not acknowledged. So I think that's a very, very good point. Yeah. Uh, three comments, beginning with uh, your mention of the target of conflict in 1999. Actually, the possession of nuclear weapons by two countries, in this case India and Pakistan, does not rule out conventional, limited conventional conflict. And uh, there is this belief that because the two are nuclear weapon states now, that any conflict uh, on the borders will essentially be escalated to a nuclear war. I think this uh, paranoia or fear is, uh, is exaggerated. In fact, perhaps there are thresholds for both sides, and those are much more serious thresholds which need to be reached first. 
and perhaps one of Pakistan's aims when it infiltrated in, in Kargil uh, of keeping this uh, uh, the threshold low or rather not reaching it was of denying that its regulars were occupying those heights. And for several weeks, if you remember, till in fact they even refused to accept bodies of uh, Northern Light Infantry soldiers who would be wanted to handle. And finally, it became an embarrassment and they had to accept. So that is one. Secondly, uh, though aspiration to great power status or a feeling of uh, you know, having arrived in a big league or something like that. They can be quoted as reasons for weaponization of a going nuclear. I think we have to remember that the primary reason is the security situation in the environment. And that Mr. Vajpayee, when he wrote to Bill Clinton uh, uh, after these tests, uh, very clearly said that we have one nuclear power, established power for a long time. And now we have a second power in the neighborhood. And what is also important is the clandestine transfer of weapon technology as well as missile technology which took place. So when these things started coming out, the decision, uh, which was bipartisan, much not later, but much before, as, as this gentleman pointed out, was taken that time. And uh, at least one recorded instance or attempt at testing was in 95 during Nursing Rao's government, which was a Congress government. So really, it is not a BJP or Hindu nationalist right. position at all. Right. Right. And the National Security Agency's satellite movement in Rajasthan, Bill Clinton got onto the phone and moved that. So therefore, in 98, they were careful that you know, all the preparations were done and the satellites were not So hmm. it came as a total surprise. But there has been bipartisan consensus on this ever since the knowledge of Pakistan weaponization and the clandestine transfer, and knowing the kind of or the fact that even in 1965 during that war with Pakistan, uh, there was this, uh, there, there was a very realistic fear of China and Pakistan both coming down together on India. So that has, that fact has never been lost on Indian policy. Right, right. In '71, during the '71 war, uh, the uh, right the. Uh, both uh, the, the Sino-American détente made it possible that uh, both of which, both China and the United States were nuclear weapon states at that time. And they both uh, supported Pakistan. And I think that impressed uh, Indira Gandhi, who uh, <coughs> was, uh, they both attempted to force India not to intervene in the civil war in the, uh, you know, East-West Pakistan civil war at that time. And as you recall, uh, China made threats about, uh, Indi about Indian garrisons on the Himalayas, that they had to remove some of them. And the United States uh, sent a uh, carrier task force led by the uh, Enterprise, a nuclear carrier, uh, to the Bay of Bengal at that time, which was a clear attempt at nuclear intimidation to force so there was no, even before, in 65, the Chinese uh, made maneuvers on their borders, so six divisions had to be deployed by India even during the war, even when the war with Pakistan was on in the Western mm -hmm. Front. Ah. Yes, ah. Even, even in 65. Excuse me. Uh, no. I just uh, wanted to add something about, the, the, there is an interesting question that you're uh, you know, raises about uh, if 
said, well, India decided to weaponize its program in a big way, uh, starting in 88. Then the question is, uh, why did India wait until 95 to start thinking about a nuclear test? Seven years is a long time. If you're going to weaponize a program, and you can build weapons fairly quickly, which presumably they could by 88, why wait until 95 to find out whether your weapons are reliable and whether, in fact, the designs are working well? And some people believe, uh, and, uh, and I, 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 find, I find this somewhat credible, that the, uh, the drive for a, uh, a nuclear test ban, a comprehensive nuclear test ban, uh, which began in 93 and sort of was reaching a crescendo in some way in 95, was partly responsible for that, that the, that the Indian nuclear weapons scientists were very concerned that if uh, a comprehensive test ban treaty were to be signed, that India would end up being, along with Pakistan and perhaps Israel, as being the only three countries that would be left out of signing that treaty, that Pakistan would say, we'll sign if the Indian sign, and the United States might be able to get Israel to sign it, in which case India could end up being the only country in the world not to have signed a comprehensive test ban, and there would be incredible pressure put on India to do so. And the weapon scientists thought that if they signed, that if India signed that treaty, it would remove a, uh, 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 the ability to actually design better weapons, smaller weapons, more effective weapons, and therefore they wanted to test and make sure that the designs that they had in place were effective and reliable, and that's why they, they wanted to test in the time frame that the drive was, was going on for the signing of a comprehensive test ban treaty. Ultimately, of course, the comprehensive test ban treaty didn't, you know, didn't get, go anywhere. But the Indians had already revved themselves up to test anyway, and so they went ahead. But, uh, but I think it's an interesting point that the, the, uh, the, the weapon scientists had a, a hand in the decision to test. They were interested in testing all along, frankly, from 74 on. Uh, they, the, the lobby really was sitting pretty much in the, uh, in the, in the offices of BARC. Uh, where, the, where the weapon scientists were located, but uh, the, uh, the political uh, uh, establishment at the time wasn't interested in, in doing it and, and were able to override them. But once the Pakistanis uh, got the bomb, then the political people began to listen more to the scientists. My, my view is that the scientists, just like in the United States, just like in France, just like in Britain, just like in Russia, were the biggest pushers for uh, building a large nuclear weapons program. And it took a confluence of other events to make the politicians basically listen to them. So they had to test then before they were shut out. Right. Basically. So that they would have an, they would know they had an arsenal in place that they could that would work. In if in fact it turned out that they were going to be pressured to not to be able to not to test anymore after that. That's very interesting. Uh, yes. I think, Professor, before we can add a couple of more explanations to the cause for this delay. Uh, sorry, there's one question that has been waiting for a while. Well, actually, my, my question probably builds on some of the comments that have been made. 
the way the program was framed was nuclearization and Indian identity, uh -huh. as if they're conjunctive. And I wonder if Indian identity sits above the nuclear question. It's almost a Venn diagram where nuclearization fits within it. And I think that there are several realpolitik calculations, which have been mentioned by three different people here, which are probably more specifically related. BJP has a very machismo Hindu uh, attitude, uh -huh. so it's facile to conclude that because of that, they wanted the bomb. There's always been, the, the Economist has written for many decades about this Indian inferiority, inferiority complex. Uh -huh. But I wonder if Indian identity in the last 15 years is so much more strongly tied to its economic might than it, its growing prowess there. And that if the question, if you talk to the younger generations in India today, they don't reference their burgeoning aspirations as a global power in the framework of having a bomb. It's in the framework of their economic uh, opportunities. So I wonder if the question should be framed more as, was this a successful gambit in 1998? We're 15 months away from a decade of weaponization. And uh, has it worked to India's advantage? I was uh, opposed when India did it. I thought it was a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, but the US has exceeded, essentially, as has been referenced. Um, they have pushed Pakistan economically in two directions. One, in the short duration, the, the um, sanctions were very crippling to Pakistan. And secondarily, any sort of a continued buildup will pay a much heavier toll on Pakistan's economy than it will on India's economy. And it's gotten its recognition from the most important global trading partner in the world, the United States, as a counterweight to China. So I wonder if it's a gambit that's paid off, even though I was opposed to it in 1998. Well, in short term, it seems to have. Yeah, it's, I would I would guess the Pakistan question is a very interesting one because uh, they asked for the same deal, and the United States said no. Yeah. So but I, I just I wonder if this is really a set of calculations that are playing out in real time as opposed to uh, the question of Indian identity. You referenced some of the uh, earlier Indian <coughs> philosophies and uh -huh. civilizations. Right. But it's tough to really create connective tissue that's linear from that to what happened in 1998. India is a, a set of competing, it, it's a diverse society with diverse philosophies and a set of different thoughts and, and uh, styles of government that have, right. have pervade, uh, prevailed over certain periods of time. Absolutely right. And I, I, I wanted to sort of uh, emphasize that, that uh, the, I think the popular conception of India is Gandhi and Nehru. And I think that that's an oversimplification. And I think that uh, certainly the the Hindutva and the Hindu uh, revitalization movement has tapped into other aspects of the national identity that that uh, were neglected by Nehru and and, and, and Gandhi. So it's a very very um, it's a, uh, a complicated picture and, and rich uh, national identity uh, sort of tradition that they can pull upon to to to, to, to that they can draw upon to uh, to uh, yeah, to uh, to justify it. To justify what he wants it to, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Yes, please. about the ambivalence that you have, that's been a theme of your of your speech um, on India's attitude towards weaponization. Um, you talked about um, earlier uh, periods of India's history, and you mentioned Ashoka as, you know, the great um, weaponizer who conquered the continent by force. What Ashoka is most remembered for is for renouncing weaponization. And he, um, you know, it's interesting to wonder how he managed to maintain his empire 
when um, his most lasting achievement um, is his turn to Buddhism and his renunciation of <coughs> martial or militaristic goals. Mm. It didn't stop him from maintaining the empire. And you kind of have to wonder, well, all the people he conquered and subjugated, mm. you know, should have seen this as an opportunity. But, mm. you know, I think that that ambivalence towards power um, goes back a long way in India's history. Mm. And I think that the recent economic boom has given Indians, young Indians, a way of coming to terms with power in a non-militaristic way, uh -huh. which has eased a lot of that <coughs> ambivalence, that cognitive dissonance towards military power that India has always had. Um, as you pointed out in your, in your speech, uh, India has not been a conquering nation. It's been, if anything, a colonized and conquered one. Uh -huh. But the, um, you know, the, uh, national identity of Indians these days is, I think, much more tied to their economic relevance. It, it's a great point because the imperial Japanese have reconstituted national identity in terms of economics, so right. much easier for an ambivalent uh, civiliz uh, civilization, ambivalent toward uh, military power um, that is experiencing the same sort of effect to focus more on its economic national identity. I remember the Japanese have a nuclear umbrella system. This gentleman has been waiting very patiently. Um, I conclude having seen Catholicism in Chicago and San Francisco that there's no longer a conventional Catholic. And 30 Brahmin graduate Indian students here have told me that in reality, Hinduism has one god, and all these other gods are for the less educated people. So my question is, is there a conventional Hinduism, and does it have an attitude towards the Brahmin? I have to defer to other. <laughs> Just one small correction. Yeah. It was not Ashoka, actually. It was Chandragupta and Chanakya uh, who sort of unified uh, in 300 uh, BC uh, India. Oh. Ashoka was later. Yeah. Oh, I His see. name was Chandragupta, uh, Chandragupta. the first uh, emperor. Oh, thank you. Yeah, but, yeah. Ashoka did. But he renounced violence. Yeah, without violence. But, but he's talking about Chanakya. No, he's right. But actually, it happened at the end of his life when he had gone through his various cycles of violence. Right. Now, no more. Uh, exactly. But Chanakya was with Chandragupta. He was his. Uh, he said Kautilya. That was his other name, Chanakya Kautilya. They were oh. the same person. Ah, I see. I see. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Sarkar, one, 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 one quick one. Yeah. <laughs> Just to, in fact, add a couple of explanations about wondering why it took seven years for the Empire to to come. You see, the intention, as I said, was always barred by partisan, it was always there. But we can offer a couple of more explanations. We said that politically as well as economically, it was not feasible for India to do so. Rajiv Gandhi's government got embroiled in the Bofar's arms scandal, and that finally forced his exit in 89. After that, we saw two unstable governments of E.P. Singh and Chandrasekhar. That India's economy situation post-independence reached its most precarious stage in 91 when we had only three weeks of imports left and we had to pledge our gold to the Bank of India and uh, then went in for all these economic reforms. The Ayodhya Mosque incident took place in, 90, in December 92. So this was a phase from 88, 89 to early 90s of 
uh, tremendous internal turmoil and instability. So therefore, it was not, I feel, we could take any but the intention was. Thank you for your comments. I appreciate it. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.